This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The state leaders are calming Oklahomans' fears of dramatic increases in heating bills because of high gas prices. They say there will be a jump because of usage to heat homes, but shouldn't see the kind of bills Texas residents received. Ryan, why are Oklahomans getting spared the kind of bills our neighbors to the South got? Well, first of all, I want to say thanks to Representative Forrest Bennett for letting me take this morning <laughs> from his office at the state capitol. I'm sitting in his chair right now. And anybody who knows Representative Bennett knows he's a lot taller than I am. So my feet aren't hitting the ground. I feel like a, a little kid. But let's talk about really grown up issues here. You know, one of the reasons is that Texas is on its own power grid. You know, we we are part of a, a regional power pool. And so, you know, our we're able to spread a lot of our liabilities and opportunities across a much bigger area than what what Texas is. I mean, they're they're relying upon their own system. You know, that being said, we still are facing some enormous challenges walking out of this uh, this historic storm, both for the Southwest Power Pool and Oklahoma's power grid. And you know, I you know, commend state leaders for thinking about you know how can we address these issues moving forward. You know, how can we avoid even the prospect of things like rolling blackouts? In the future, how can we make sure that Oklahoma residents aren't ever in a situation where they are, you know, literally, you know, going to bed in sub-freezing temperatures and worrying whether or not they or their family members, especially vulnerable family members, are going to wake up in the morning? And we've seen a lot of that in Oklahoma. It was deadly and dangerous here, but when we look to what happened in, in Texas, we we certainly want to avoid that. You know. Governor Stitt said that this was a once-in-a-lifetime storm, and I would I would just add to that, for now. It was a once-in-a-lifetime storm for now. We've seen two extraordinary weather events in the last several months in Oklahoma, both with the ice storm back in October and with this Arctic blast that we've all just weathered for the last several, for the last couple of weeks, and we're, we're on the thaw now. But I think that we have to recognize that climate change is going to continue to drive more severe storm systems, more unpredictable weather patterns. <clears throat> and it is it is encouraging. Trey Savage with Nondoc Media said on Twitter earlier this week that he approached several leaders in the state about the issue of climate change and how that should factor into our planning. And rather than getting pushback that climate change isn't real, they acknowledged climate change and seemed to say that, you know, that it did play a role in the the way the state should move forward. So that's encouraging, but there's there's a there's a whole lot of work that we've got ahead of us. Neva. Well, and I, I agree, there is a lot of work. And I think that the fact that on Monday, we had basically all of the state leaders coming together in the news conference to basically try to calm the fears of, of Oklahomans that were naturally there for all of the reasons that you just described, Ryan. I mean, the fact that, that we've had an event in the last few weeks that we have not seen in 122 years, it, it is historic. And the and the implications in terms of going forward have have to bring a lot of people to the table. We already know that there's a select committee on the Senate side that are going to look at this in the legislature. The House will use its utility uh, utilities committee to assess the situation. But by and large, we also have the executive branch saying that they are going to work with the Corporation Commission to get a commitment 
to spread these costs over a period of time, as you say. I mean, this could be a period of months or years, but to make it much more manageable for the customers. And I think this is something that everyone recognizes as critical for all Oklahomans. And there is a process. Certainly, the these rate regulated utilities have to uh, file a case. The majority of the commissioners, corporation commissioners, uh, have to approve the costs that are passed on in some form. So there, there is a there is a procedure, and there are things that are going to have to occur over the next weeks and months. But I think I think the the upshot of this is the good news for Oklahomans is it's all hands on deck, and and we have everyone committed to work to make this um, as painless as possible, even though there's been a great deal, a great deal of pain and difficulty in the last few weeks. And even, as you say, all the way back uh, to last October with mm-hmm. the ice storm that we experienced then. President Biden approves a second emergency declaration by Governor Stitt from the devastating winter storms. As we spoke about last week, the president already approved an initial declaration for cities, counties and tribes for the cost of responding to damage from the icy blast across the state. Neva, why is the state administration seeking a second declaration? Well, I think the the second declaration is an add-on. It, mm-hmm. it allows for federal funding to be available to affected individuals in 16 counties that were specifically noted in the second declaration. And it also, in that, allows for grants for temporary housing, home repairs, low-cost loans to cover uninsured property losses, other programs for both individuals and businesses so that they can recover from the effects of the disaster. So in these very affected areas, this additional federal funding that be, that will become available is uh, very significant. The governor asked for this on Tuesday. The the president made the declaration on Wednesday. So it's it's moving. But the good news is this is moving with good speed and it will make it also some of this additional federal funding will be available to the state and eligible local governments, as well as certain private nonprofits on a cost-sharing basis to be able to do some things that are emergency protective measures, as well as hazard mitigation measures statewide. So the good news in terms of the more federal assistance coming to supplement what was already put in place with the first one for state, tribal, and local recovery efforts. Ryan. Well, and, and individuals are going to need that assistance. I mean, we we, we're not talking about luxury here. I mean, you know, the, the different we, t- we were talking about energy cost and, and people's heating bills right before this. And you know, we're, we're not talking about, oh, are people able to stay warm? You know, those questions are, are they able to stay alive? But one of the other costs that individuals are facing right now are, you know, smaller, the, the, the smaller scale of what the municipal governments uh, and county governments and the state have already experienced and already got some relief from the federal government for, or at least in the pipeline. That's infrastructure. We saw, you know, city water mains going out, but we've also seen a lot. And you drive, you drive through just about any neighborhood in, in Oklahoma City right now, and you're going to see a plumbing truck out there because somebody's got their their pipes that have burst. And you know, when those pipes burst, it doesn't just, you know, affect that pipe. Oftentimes, it will, you know, flood critical parts of a house. There can be an enormous liabilities there. When you're talking about renters, you know, if you don't have renters insurance or renters insurance that covers something like that, is it on you? Is it on the landlord? There's so many big big ticket items that Oklahomans are going to be facing as a result of the storm and for weeks, months to come. And being able to at least have some idea that there's that they're that they don't have to 
leverage all of their savings if they have any savings left over. I mean, let's face it, we're we're a year into a pandemic right now. This is the second natural disaster that Oklahomans have experienced since since October. And so a lot of people have already drained their savings. I you look at the the, the cost of of tree removal and limb removal that a lot of people faced and you know roof damage and everything that people faced during the ice storm. Now they've got you know, possible, you know, busted pipes in their homes and they're, they're or flooding in their homes and they're dealing with that. You know, a lot of Oklahomans are fortunate to have insurance, but a lot more aren't. And you know, it's it's good to know that the federal government and the state government are working together on this front to, you know, make sure that people don't have to go into, you know, you know go go try to dig up everything they've got in their backyard just to ba- make these basic repairs from an extraordinary storm. A bill before lawmakers looks to add more state control over Oklahoma and Tulsa County health departments. The legislation from Oklahoma City Republican Representative Chris Kennedy allows the commissioner of health to have input on hiring and firing of the county directors. It also prevents the local departments from taking any actions more stringent than state laws or the state board of health. Ryan, why do you think this bill is getting considered? Well, I think that, you know, you know one a representative candidate has has a lot of power in the state legislature. I, I think that whenever he puts a bill out there, that it's probably going to get considered for the most part. And and I can appreciate where he's coming from to an extent. His his service in the Oklahoma National Guard, where he was called up over the summer in part to respond to this to the pandemic. I think that you know, he recognized and learned about a lot of chain of command issues that he saw in terms of dealing with you know you know multiple health departments that are under the state's control. And then you have the two large health departments under under boards that are within those particular in those particular counties. Yeah, that being said, I think that there's they didn't separate out, you know, the, the folks that created the system, you know, didn't just do it, you know, for the heck of it. They did it because the metropolitan areas in Oklahoma County and Tulsa County present unique health problems and health delivery problems to the rest of the state of Oklahoma. And, you know, so their ability to respond to this pandemic, especially whenever they have disagreement with the way that the state was moving forward. You know, Tulsa and Oklahoma County recognized that there needed to be more stringent measures. The city of Tulsa, Oklahoma City, they recognized that there needed to be more stringent measures. And unfortunately, I I remember at the outset of this pandemic thinking this may be one of the the things that can strip away some of the the division that we've seen in our nation over the last many, many years and bring us back together. And it only took about a month into the pandemic for the partisan tent in, in the United States to cast itself upon the politics of the pandemic. And so when Tulsa County, the Tulsa County Health Department was saying, we don't want, uh, we don't think it's a good idea for President Trump to come hold a, a rally in the middle of a pandemic in Tulsa with a lot of people in one enclosed space, and the state was very much in favor of it. I'm sure that Governor Stitt wished that he had control over the Tulsa County Health Department to say, you don't get to have any say in this. I think that this bill may be well-intentioned, but when you consider the unique challenges that Oklahoma and Tulsa County face mm-hmm. in delivering health health information and access and delivery, and then whenever you also look at the benefit that all Oklahomans get whenever we benefit from independent healthcare advice, that's unfettered by state politics. I, I think that this bill ultimately would would mean worse healthcare outcomes for the people of Oklahoma, even though it may make things more efficient for for state leaders in some situations. Neva, well, I think it is going to be fascinating to see how the bill ultimately moves through the House and Senate. We as 
as you've described somewhat, Ryan, there there have already been changes to the uh, the original legislation, as we know, as we go through this process and committee work and just the give and take, uh, trying to find what they often say is the good balance. And in, in the instance of some of the changes that have been made already, it really does lend to a little more administrative alignment among the state of the state and local health departments. But this really, it boils down to Tulsa and Oklahoma County. It boils down to not only are there legislators wanting to see this change clearly, uh, but the governor has uh, has wanted to, to see this change. So there there is a big push. And I think that the overall takeaway of how we see this from a state perspective is that the State Department of Health, that commissioner appointed by the governor, oversees 68 local county health departments, but the health departments in Oklahoma County and Tulsa are independent. And that's, as you say, due to the due to the large populations that they serve and mm-hmm. due to the way that they receive the, their funding, largely through local property taxes from county residents. So so this is this is seems like a, a piece of legislation that wouldn't have much interest to a lot of people. But I think it is on the radar, not only at the legislature, but certainly across across the state to see how this is how this is going to ultimately materialize in terms of the outcome. And I think that the the give and take on whether this is a blatant attempt to overstep and centralize power as the as the folks at the Tulsa City County Board of Health, the chairwoman there, that was her description, or whether it is uh, something that is is really a need to maintain better administrative administrative control and have less issues as Ryan described a moment ago. This this characterization of the the chain of command problems that existed that uh, Representative Kennedy has talked about with this bill that he is uh, moving through the legislature. So the long and the short is we'll see whether Tulsa and Oklahoma County remain independent or whether they are drawn in. The bill itself, I think, does does allow now for the health commissioner to appoint one of the nine city county board members that would be in both Oklahoma and Tulsa counties. And it also would allow the commissioner to recommend the removal of the director of either one of those of those departments. So it's certainly, I mean, it is certainly going to be a change in all likelihood in some fashion when all is said and done, just given the fact that that this bill seems to have traction and seems to be moving through the process with some, you know, with some something probably occurring that gets passed at the end of the day. Well, and also, you know, let's let's pay attention to the dynamic or recurring theme on this week in Oklahoma politics or the separation of powers and the consolidation of power in the executive branch that we've seen under Governor Kevin Stitt. And I think that that's going to be you know, part of this conversation, because even even lawmakers that may want to rein in Oklahoma and Tulsa counties uh, may nevertheless be reluctant to do so if it means giving more power to the executive, because I, I feel like a lot of legislators on both sides of the aisle feel pretty burned by some of the power that they've granted this governor so far. Republican lawmakers sign on to legislation challenging executive orders from President Biden. More than 60 Oklahoma House Republicans support House Bill 1236, allowing Oklahoma to challenge orders from the federal government and declare those actions unconstitutional through a majority vote of the legislature. Neva, why are they doing this? Well, I mean, first of all, I think you have more than 60 of these House Republicans that are supporting this bill because they are 
are very critical of these 31 plus executive orders that that the president has uh, already signed into effect in his first month in office. And, you know, some of them directly kind of, you know, directly hit on Oklahomans. I mean, one of the things that Representative Mark McBride, who authored the bill along with Speaker Charles McCall, said was that basically that Oklahoma that the president had taken a direct stab at the eye at Oklahoma with the order to revoke the Keystone pipeline permit. So, so the, so I think the lawmakers are are making kind of making this move to make the point that they that they recognize the ramifications of some of these federal actions that are taking place. They would like to see the ability, obviously, in this piece of legislation, they're saying to override these actions uh, related to a variety of things. But but the long and the short of it is, I mean, it is an attempt legislatively to to prevent the state from being being placed in a position where we're having detrimental impact from these particular executive orders that that already have been signed into effect and ones that I think we can anticipate may come in the future. Ryan. Well, it, it's it's that time of the year again when when Republican lawmakers, you know, come together whenever there's a Democrat in the White House and assert everything from you know, state sovereignty, the 10th Amendment, states' rights, you know, all of these kind of bullet points that, that are important concepts in, in their own regard, but they, but they wrap them together in something that is ultimately designed to go on a mail piece, ultimately designed to you know, help a conversation that a lawmaker has you know, back in their coffee shops at home, whenever you're able to go back to coffee shops and have these conversations with constituents again at some point. But you know, I think that that's, that's what this is. And it, it is interesting to me, though, that the, the Republicans that are supporting this are the beneficiaries of a decades-long campaign to capture the federal courts. And you know, we, we have one of the, if not the most conservative judiciary in the modern era of, of American politics at the moment. And you know, nevertheless, the state legislature is saying that it's their power to say what is and isn't constitutional when it's decidedly the federal court's power to say what is and isn't constitutional. And the supremacy clause of the Constitution doesn't give a heck what any state legislature, including the Oklahoma legislature, says about asserting that authority. That authority just simply doesn't belong to the state legislature. It belongs uh, with the courts, and you know they're the ones that will ultimately decide what is and isn't constitutional. If legislators see an executive action that they don't like, if the attorney general sees an executive action that they don't like and they feel like they've got standing to go to a federal court and challenge it, they can do that all day long. But to you know, say that the state legislature has that, that power is simply you know, missing the point. And, and again, from a strategic standpoint, if I were uh, a conservative Republican member of the state legislature, I'd be reveling in the fact that it's a very conservative judiciary, for the most part, that's going to be deciding on these executive actions. So you know, that's they, they should have a resolution celebrating their, their big win and their win from their, their brethren at the, the Federalist Society and capturing the courts and turning the courts into, again, one of the most conservative judiciaries that, that we've perhaps ever seen in our country. I think it is important to note that the the resolution that is also that has also been 
introduced that asserts the sovereignty under the Tenth Amendment. It is important that from from the Republican vantage point, the Tenth Amendment, which makes explicit the idea that the federal government is limited to only the powers granted in the Constitution, and this has certainly been declared a truism in the in the Supreme Court that that uh, all is retained, which has not been surrendered, uh, is an important point and an, is an important idea that Republicans have long, you know, long advanced, long supported, and made uh, something that is very important in the conversation from the legislative perspective. And I think that's why we see uh, House H.R. 1005 kind of doing exactly that, serving kind of serving notice that the states clearly understand that they reserve the authority to determine certain things. And uh, I think from a perspective of going back, as you say, Ryan, home to the to the district and to speak with their constituents, this is something that receives a very warm, very warm reception by and large, I think, across Oklahoma. The Cherokee Supreme Court strikes the word in blood from the tribe's constitution and laws. The historic ruling appears to end a decades-long debate over citizenship status in the largest tribe in the country. Ryan, how big of a deal is this? There will not be blood. It's a, it's a very big deal. It's, uh, and, and I encourage folks, go to the Cherokee Court's website, read this opinion. It's, you know, I, I, and I, I've been encouraging folks to go read these, you know, the state court opinions and some of these cases and, and some of these pleadings that we've seen. You, you see there, there's a luxury in the judiciary to be able to you know, speak at length and to, to get, a, get away from some of the, the talking points that we see in our legislative, legislative and executive branches, whether we're talking about tribal governments or the state government of Oklahoma. And the opinion in this case is a wonderful history of freedmen in the Cherokee Nation, the Treaty of 1866. So folks, go check that out. Essentially, what this opinion said was that a a case, a federal case that began back in 2007, I believe, and the the Cherokee Nation voluntarily waived sovereignty. They put in front of a federal court the question of whether or not the Treaty of 1866 granted equal rights to freedmen. You know, those were individuals, the descendants of individuals who were slaves of members of the Cherokee Nation, whether those individuals, those descendants, those freedmen had equal rights under the Cherokee Nation. That federal court case decided back in 2017 said absolutely they do. They have, under the Treaty of 1866, equal rights of membership and citizenship in the Cherokee Nation with those that have blood lineage from the Shawnee, Delaware, and Cherokee tribes that make up the Cherokee Nation originally. And what this court said was that because of that that Treaty of 1866 supersedes all of this, everything that's happened since then that has put a requirement of blood, of having some blood lineage, that that it was null at its inception. It was void at its inception. And so uh, all of those additions to Cherokee constitutions and Cherokee laws that reference blood need to be removed. And that's, that's an interesting way to, to go about it. In, in, in Oklahoma law, we have laws on the books in Oklahoma that are patently unconstitutional. They've been declared unconstitutional, yet the laws stay on the books and they're just unenforceable. But here the court said these words were never valid to begin with. Their addition to the Constitution never had any legal merit or legal weight, and we need to strike them immediately to reflect the values that this nation agreed to in the Treaty of 1866. So it's a, I think it's, it's a fascinating case, and I think it's a, an important marker in the progress of the Cherokee Nation 
towards equal citizenship for all of its for all of its people. Neva. Well, I think I mean you've certainly I think outlined what took place with the with the with the Cherokee Supreme Court, and it was a unanimous decision on Monday to remove the words by blood from not only all tribal laws, but the but the tribe's own constitution and all that you have described in terms of the history of how this how, how this has come to pass. And I think the, the the sidebar to this obviously is the sharp rebuke that came from several members of the the tribe's legislature, basically saying that this exceeded that this exceeded the authority by unilaterally changing the constitution, their belief being that the constitution can only be changed by a constitutional convention or a vote of the people. So this is always the rub between, you know, lawmakers and the courts and, and, and where, where the process begins and ends. But you're right, Ryan, I think this is certainly a very fascinating, fascinating disposition that the Cherokee High Court has taken and one worth many Oklahomans taking time to read. Neva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.